Good morning, church. Thank you, Anna, for giving us a, a few things uh, to celebrate. Uh, we repeat what we celebrate, and we want to take time. Every month for the next eight months, we're going to take one of our eight core values and give some challenges, some individual challenges, some corporate communal challenges. And then we plan on the fourth Sunday of every month from now through April being a day where we celebrate how we've seen God work. And just some of the, the stories Anna shared, some of them are really big things of how God moved in the lives of people, and some of them are small things, but they all matter when it comes to the kingdom of God. We are a church that wants to boldly raise up discipleship is the mission of the church. That when it comes to conversion, when it comes to following Jesus, this isn't about helping people come to know Jesus and confessing Him as the Lord of their life and being baptized and then patting Him on the back and wishing them a good life with God. It is discipleship is coming around, coming together as a church, living into everything God wants us to be about. This is huge. So I want you, I'm asking you, if you're in person, those of you joining us online, we're so glad you're with us. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. This is where we're going to be for the next nine weeks. It's five chapters long. I encourage you if you haven't already, take time just to read through this book and email me, reach out to me. Let me know what parts of this book mean the most to you. What questions do you have as you read this book? We're going to be in it for the next nine weeks. And I want to begin with this argument that in First Peter, Peter is concerned about discipleship even more than he is concerned about evangelism. And that isn't to minimize evangelism, is that when Peter is writing to this church, he's writing to people who've already given their lives to the Lord. These are sisters and brothers in Christ, and he's writing to encourage them, equip them, edify them to go and live among the pagans, to be good people committed to goodness and righteousness. So in other words, uh, Peter's strategy is not to write to churches and to say, hey, six months from now, I'm going to put an event together in your area, so I want you to invite all your friends, we're going to feed them, and then let's come together, have a worship service, and then me as an effective communicator of the gospel, I'm going to preach, and we're going to help win people to Jesus. That was not Peter's strategy. His strategy was to help sisters and brothers in Christ and all of these churches know that the power of God has transformed your life, and now God is asking the church to live as witnesses everywhere you go. Now, as Peter writes to these churches, he's very strategic in words he chooses, phrases he chooses. chooses. And there, there's a word that Peter uses that hardly shows up anywhere else in the New Testament. And it shows up three different times. And this is a, this is a way Peter is trying to instill identity in, in the lives of the people in the churches he's writing to. And it's this word, strangers. Some of your versions, it may be exiles. Some of your versions, it may be sojourners. But in chapter 1, verse 1, what Peter writes to start off the book is to God's elect, like to God's chosen people, to the people God has redeemed, exiles, strangers, sojourners scattered throughout the province. He starts out by telling them this name, like this is who we are. In chapter 1, verse 17, he comes back to this word, live out your time as exiles, as strangers, in reverent fear, like just in fear of God, in obedience to God, live this out. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, and I'm going to come back to this later on, he says this, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Like, this is who you are. I urge you as aliens and strangers, which this may sound strange. 
I don't know about you. I mean, there have been times where I've had to be a stranger in new places. And, it, and it's not the easiest thing. I mean, my family, my dad, his first preaching job, we were in this small little town in East Texas of about 7,000 people. And his next preaching job was in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. So my family, after most of my childhood being in a really small area, we moved to Mesquite, Texas, right, in, right, right almost in the heart of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And I started middle school in a brand new school. I didn't know anybody in my school. And it was three weeks of my life where I, I, it was hard to make friends. I had people tell me I couldn't sit at their cafeteria table because they already had all their seats saved. And being a stranger in a new place, wondering, am I going to be welcome? And I'm sure you have felt this before because you've moved to a new place. You've had a new job. Maybe you've attended a new church. And what is it like to be a stranger in a new place? Now, some of you may love being a stranger in a new place because you don't want anybody to talk to you. You just want to be a stranger. Maybe that's you. Now, Casey, growing up, she tells the story that her dad used to coach her and the boys in everything they did up until middle school. Her dad coached all their teams. And it didn't matter if it was the girls he was coaching or the guys he was coaching. Her dad had a cheer he would do with all their team. And it was as simple as this. It was, who are we? And they would shout out the name of their team. Like, they're the Tigers, they're the Lions, they're the Bobcats, whoever they are. Who are we? We're the Lions. And then it was, what are we? We're winners. So every game, they would start off with this cheer. Who are we? We're the Lions. uh, What are we? We're winners. So on our wedding day, before those back doors open, Casey looked at her dad and Casey said, Dad, let's do it again. We've got to do our cheer. So right there in the back, it was, who are we? We're Rogers. And what are we? We're winners. And I'm so glad in the moment, Casey didn't think, I I want this cheer to always be Rogers. I I don't want to have to do a new cheer. I'm so glad those doors opened and she was ready to come down that aisle. But who are we? What are we? We're, this is who we are and we're winners. Now, Peter's writing to five different provinces. He's writing to people living under the Roman Empire. And he's writing to these people, trying to remind them who they are in God. And, and can you just imagine, he's writing to these people. It's like, who are we? And they're like, we're Christians. And what are we? And the response is like, we're aliens and strangers? Like, it's, like what are we? We're followers of Jesus. And, and what do we do? We, we're exiles. Like, does that get anybody excited? So Peter's writing to these people like, hey, we're called to be strangers. I want you to know you're strangers. And they were living in a time where things were strange. They were called into this kind of life where now they, they're called to live a life that's strange. They're called to be strangers. Right there where they are. They're in a time when the emperor was Nero. The emperor for him was a guy named Claudius who had now grown the Roman provinces. So they're all in these areas where the Roman Empire had slowly taken over. He's writing to people, most of them in rural areas where everybody probably knew everybody. And he's writing to tell them over three times, you're strangers in this land. Now for people who know the Bible very well, you know that this is nothing new to the Bible. There's strangers and exiles all over the Bible. 
Abraham and Sarah were exiles who spent part of their life on the move, just being obedient to God, not knowing if settlement would ever come. The same is true for Moses as he led people 40 years in the wilderness. The same is true for David who spent years of his life on the run. And for Ruth and many other people in the Bible, even Jesus who spent many years of their lives as sojourners. They were exiles. They were strangers in a land. And this is, this is nothing new for the Bible. There are times that people were called to be obedient and trust to be obedient, like trust in your obedience to God, even more than you want settlement in a place. But what, peop- what the people of God also learn is that when you're in that in-between place and when you're a stranger in the land, it does not mean abandonment by God. If anything, it means God is near. He's with you in the in-between. So even now, as some of you are in-between health crises and sickness or relational strain or whatever it may be, your abandonment or your, your feeling of being a stranger in a land, that, that doesn't mean God's abandonment. Now, here's something Peter offers up. He give us a, gives us a gift. All right, because this doesn't happen all the time in the Bible. In the Bible, you read a lot of these books, especially in the New Testament, and sometimes you have to wonder, what is this book about? And then there are times where Peter and one or two times where Paul will just tell you, here is why I wrote this letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, look, here's why I did it. Here is why I wrote this. In 1 Peter 5, 12, I have written this short letter. And some of you may read that and not think it's so short, all right? Five chapters, doesn't fit in the tweet, doesn't fit in the text message. But this short letter, and here's why I did it. I wrote to encourage you. And I put this all together to testify that this is the true grace of God and that you will stand fast in it. The whole reason he wrote, he is saying, I put all this together reminding you that you're strangers in a land, reminding you who you are in God. And the whole reason I did this was to encourage the church and to testify that this is the true grace of God and that you'll stand confident in this no matter what. I celebrated a milestone a couple of weeks ago. I turned 40, hit the big 4-0. I know it's hard for some of you to believe. I, I, uh, some people decorated my office. I love this one right here. It says, I'm not 40. I'm 18 with 22 years of experience. And I, I want to I live on that for the next year of my life. To celebrate 40, I, we decided as a family we were going to get the boys out of virtual school, out of school for a few days. We are going to go to the beach and celebrate my 40 years of life. And we got to the beach only to be greeted by Hurricane Sally, who we became well acquainted with. Now, when I tell this story or write a book about this story in 20 years, it's going to be a lot better than what, what it really was. I mean, we survived this hurricane, and it was awful. Probably the worst vacation we've ever had. Super stressful. I need another vacation because that one wasn't good. But then there were these days. I mean, you probably have these moments now too where you just experience things, and all you can do is shrug your shoulders and just think, it's 2020. What else? I mean, 2020. 96 days until 2021. Not that anybody's counting, right? And 2021 is looking at us like, please don't put all that pressure on me. Like, like I don't think I'm going to be as good as you really expect me to be. Like, don't put that much pressure on me. But then there was part of me that was like, is this foreshadowing of what my 40s are going to be like? Like, it starts off in a hurricane. Does that mean it gets better? Or is this just what it's going to be like for a while? I, I don't know. But here, here's what I've done the last few months of my life is I have taken time to reflect on 40 years. 
And the people who have spoken Jesus into me, who called me out of sin and to the ways of God, people who came alongside to bless and strengthen our marriage, people who have just poured so much into me. And I've taken time to reflect as a, as a preacher who's been doing this now almost two decades, what are some things that I regret? And not that I would wallow in some of my mistakes, but that as I move into the future, that I won't repeat some of the things I've done in the past. And for a year now, I knew that I'd be preaching First Peter this fall, so there's no place in the Bible that I've spent more time with in the last year of my life than in First Peter. Reading this over and over and over again, listening to this. And this is the book God has used in the last year of my life to hold me close to the heart of God, to prepare me for what it means to be a minister in times when it's hard. And I kept coming back to chapter 5, verse 12 of what Peter says, and I echo, and I want to live into this. Like, I want to come alongside of Peter, that this is my confession too, that here's what I want to do. I want to live my life, and I want to speak in a way where I encourage people. And then I bear witness, and I testify that the true grace of God, this is a gift for us, and that we will stand confident in it. This is who we are. So Peter's writing to these people. And I'm going to spend a little more time next week talking about the context. But he's mostly writing to people in rural areas. Now, I think this is really important. Because I think Peter is writing to people who are dealing with social pressure, social alienation, maybe social oppression, even more than people are dealing with physical persecution. And a lot of times that's where our minds go. When we think first century Christianity, we always think, Physical persecution. Like, that's what these people were suffering from. Like, every day people were dying for the cause of Christ. And that's probably not true. There were pockets of physical persecution that would happen, but a lot of social pressure and social consequences that could have economic consequences. Because let me paint a picture for you. So, most likely Peter is writing to first generation Christians, which means people are making decisions for Christ that were not modeled for them by parents. Maybe at this point there are some second generation Christians, probably not a lot. So if you were a Christian in these provinces Peter's writing to, either you had left a life of Judaism, so you've walked away from Judaism where now you are following the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, or you have stepped away and you've walked away from paganism to follow in the ways of Jesus. And if you're in a rural area where everybody knows everybody, you have social pressure because relatives don't understand why the commitment you've made means that you can't attend certain family functions anymore or you won't participate in some of the traditions or practices we used to participate in. Or you have pagans who are like, why will you not go to Gold's Club with me anymore? This is what we've done for years. Why will you not do certain things or attend certain events? And imagine if you were a wife living in a time where the husband was the head of the household, meaning anything he said goes. You don't have a voice in culture. Or you're a slave living in a time where you've given your life to Jesus, but you still have a master. And you have masters who are saying things like, not only do I want you to attend this event with me, I need you to serve the event that I'm hosting. And now... There's this conflict of interest because you've given your life to Jesus. So what does it mean to follow in the ways of Jesus when there's social pressure coming upon you that could have all kinds of consequences in your life? Peter's writing to people, telling them, hang on, stay true to your confession. 
even when social pressure is there, even when it's hard. Because commitment to Christ means loss. Commitment to Christ at some point and somewhere in your life, it means loss. Like you have to lose something. And the best way to go about social pressure is to know your identity and your commitment. It's identity and commitment. Who are you and what do we do? It's identity. This is who we are in God and what do we do? How do we live out this commitment in the world? I went to a Christian university. I, uh, my sophomore year, I pledged, uh, we call them social clubs at Christian universities. That's what we call them. Sororities, fraternities, we had social clubs. I pledged a social club. It was about a four to six week process, the pledging process where I was. And part of what we had to do is you had to meet with every member of the club. So we had dozens and dozens of members. You had to meet with them. They had to sign their name that you had met with them. And before you could become a member of the club, you had to meet with every member. And most members would want to sit with you maybe for 30 minutes and have a conversation and get to know you better. But then there were other members who they wanted you to do certain things for them. You know, bring me lunch, wash the dishes, do the laundry. I showed up at one house with a friend for a visit. We were in suit and ties because that's what we had to wear to pledge where I was. And we showed up in a suit and tie and we had an hour for this visit. And he said, for an hour. And he looked at his yard and we looked at a huge yard and the grass was high. And he said, I need y'all to cut my grass. And then he handed us a pair of scissors and said, go for it. So me and a buddy in a suit and tie, in order to get their signatures on the piece of paper, got on all fours and for an hour did our best to cut some grass. And as you can imagine, we didn't even come close to finishing his yard. It was a huge yard. And the grass was tall. And for an hour, we tried our best just to cut the grass. And there are times like what we're living through right now where I look out at the challenges in front of us and it feels like someone is handing me a pair of scissors saying, have fun trying to cut the grass. As we navigate COVID, this is my fifth presidential election to be the preacher at a church in. And any time I preach through presidential election seasons, it almost feels like, here's some, here's some scissors, have fun. Go for it, do your best. And then we look around at so much social pressure and cultural things going on in our culture and justice for Brianna and violence is breaking out in a lot of different circles and Supreme Court justice and people have opinions about everything. And I just come back to the question, can the church do it? Like can the church navigate seasons like this, remembering and reminding ourselves who we are, what's our identity, what's our commitment, what are we in this for? What does it mean to give our allegiance to Jesus even when it's hard? And Peter's writing to people who are dealing with the same thing. And here's what he writes to them. And most people, if you were to read theologians and scholars and commentaries on 1 Peter, most people believe that this book hinges on these few verses I'm about to read to you. It holds together the introduction. It holds together kind of the meat of this book. But in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, and I want you to think, I want you to see this. There's identity and there's commitment. This is who you are and this is how you live it out. In verse 9, here's what Peter writes. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's identity. This is who you are. And here's what you're supposed to do with it. There's this light that you were called to be to the world. And then the same thing happens beginning in verse 11. There's identity and there's, there's this commitment. Dear friends, I urge you. This is not a suggestion. This is not take this if you want to. I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires. Not just sexual desires, but sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. I remember a friend, a mentor who taught me and my friends for years. He would say, guys, I tell you this every single year, and this is it. If the price is right, anybody's integrity and character is for sale. If the price is right, you, you remember whose you are. And Peter's writing to these people saying, hey, you're aliens and strangers, and know the enemy's coming after you, but you were called to a life, committed to a life of goodness. Now, here's what I'm asking you to believe especially over the next six weeks, that God is not on the line with whatever happens in the next six weeks. God's not on the line. God has been through election seasons. God's been through a lot of tough things that have happened in the world. God's not on the line. The global church is not on the line based on what happens in the United States over the next six weeks. The global church, God's church, has survived all kinds of things over the last 2,000 years. The church will survive into the future. But here's what is on the line, is the Christian's witness. Our witness to the world of the faithfulness of God is on the line. So when it comes to being strangers in the world, let me talk just for a moment about what this is not and then what this is. What this is not and what this is. What it means to be aliens and strangers. Let me begin with what this is not. To be an alien and a stranger in this world. This is not about whining or complaining when there's social pressure around us. Nowhere in this letter does Peter say anything about complaining. What he reminds people over and over again is you commit yourself to a life of goodness and righteousness and justice. This is who you are. That no matter what, when there is social pressure around you, you stand confident that a life committed to goodness is worth imitating. It's virtuous. The second thing is this, to be an alien and stranger in the world. This is not vertical separation as much as this is horizontal challenges. So I don't think Peter's writing, talking about how this world is not your home. You're just passing through. All your treasures are somewhere up in the blue. I don't think that's it. This isn't about vertical separation from God. This is about horizontal challenges in life. That Peter's writing the churches where they are to remember whose you are, where you are. As you live among the pagans, as you live among all these people who may not agree with who you are and what you are doing, you are, you, you are reminded you are a stranger. You're committed to another king and a different kingdom. And the third thing, this is not about disengagement. Peter and Paul write to churches encouraging them and equipping them, be the people of God where you are. At no point does the New Testament advocate for some Christian form of Mecca. 
where Christians go and live on an island or find some place where Christians go and just hang out with Christians where you all share the same belief system and sing the same songs and take communion the same way and where there are no Philadelphia Eagle fans. Like that's, that's not what, what Peter's advocating for or what Paul advocates for. This isn't some Christian mecca. It, it, any play, anytime there are Christians who form a group or there are only Christians with no relationship with the outside world, it's not what it means to be a Christian. Peter's writing the church is saying, hey, commit yourself to a life of, with God as you mingle and live life among pagans. Now, here's what this means to be aliens and strangers in the world. Here's what it means. It means that we believe that a life committed to goodness does bear fruit. Right? Sometimes you may wonder if your life is bearing any fruit. A life committed to goodness and righteousness, it's not going to be fruitless. Secondly, what it means is there's marginal status that we're invited into by God. Marginal status, which means this. If people around us know without a shadow of a doubt what our political affiliation is, yet they think we are Christians, we're not living the kind of life God wants us to live. And if your political convictions and your Christian convictions have mingled to where you cannot tell the difference. There is idolatry in your life that needs to be repented of. We're called to a different king and a different kingdom. Now the third thing, there's marginal status and there's also missionary status. The Peter's reminding people, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or Jew or Gentile, however you have come to God, Everyone becomes a missionary. Where freedom in Christ is meant to lead to public witness for Christ. By the way you live your life, by the way you speak, freedom in Christ is not something that you hold within yourself. It is something that you always share with the world. Now, as Peter writes, what he reminds people of, you are called to be strangers and aliens, but you also need to know what this means is, is that there are forces in this world waging war against your soul. And we have to acknowledge all the ways Satan is coming to wage war against our souls. The next four to six weeks, you're going to have a lot of voices grabbing your attention, not just telling you to love a candidate, probably even more so telling you to hate and despise a candidate. And we've got to rise above it. If only Jesus were on the ballot, right? Yeah, what, I, what I was reminded of by a friend this past week is Jesus was on a ballot once. He was a candidate. There was another person who was a candidate. And the vote was unanimous. And the way the Bible tells this story, especially in Acts chapter 2, is that it wasn't just a few people, but all humanity, even us, who chose a guy named Barabbas and voted for him to be set free, condemning Jesus to his death. And Jesus went all the ways to his death knowing that his loss was going to be the world's gain. So we have a presidential debate coming up in a couple of days. I don't know if you're aware of that. And many of us are going to watch because we, want to, we care about the country we live in. But I encourage you, after you watch, spend a little time with the Lord. Rest in peace. Be reminded that the, the mission of God, the character of God is going to carry on no, no matter what. And don't allow yourself to stoop to the point where you either demonize candidates or, in an unhealthy way, elevate candidates to a place God never intends them to be. 
I don't think it's a call of the church or the call for me as a preacher or a Christian is always stand in the middle. I think Jesus is further left than many people want to believe and Jesus is further right than many pe- people want to believe. And I don't think the, the call of the church or Christians is to be in the middle, but it is to rise above everything going on in our world to make sure that we know our allegiance is to God and God alone. And we can do this. Our freedom in Christ is meant to be public witness. So I encourage people, think, what kind of person does God want you to be on December 1st of this year? And now work backwards from there. Of what daily practices do you need in your life connecting to God so when December 1st comes, this is the person that God, you know God has been forming and shaping you to be this kind of person when we get through this. And the church, we can do this. So I just want to leave us with conviction and challenges and by remembering some of the things Peter tells us in his book and that is to take heart stand fast because for them their commitment to Christ had social consequences and probably economic consequences but they knew that victory and gain are part of what it means to be a Christian and suffering and loss is also what it means to be a Christian and Jesus is involved in it all And Peter's reminding people, just like we need to be reminded today, to stay awake and to be aware because Satan is coming for our heart and for our allegiance. And Satan knows if he can get our eyes to look at something uh, for a long period of time and our ears to keep listening to something, that our hearts will follow where our eyes and our ears take it. So rise above all this, church. Live in hope, not fear. Don't be manipulated by the messaging and the trickery and the cunning that is coming for you, painting worst-case scenarios, but root yourself in a better story, in a gospel story, in the Jesus story. And let your life set the stage for your message because we earn the right to speak Jesus into people's lives. And be strange. Be strange. So will you do me, do me a favor? Let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. For God, in this moment, as we pray and as we lead to the table, remind us that Jesus was willing to be strange. Remind us of our commitment to Him. I want to remind people who are here in person that if there's anything we can do for you, if God is piercing your heart, working on you in any way, we have an elder to receive you after church. For those online, we have a connect card. We'd love to pray for you. And in this prayer, um, as we lead up to communion, where we take the bread and cup, something we do every week, we are reminded that in this moment, the God we pray to, the Jesus we pray to, is that, that he's not the hero of the story because he died and stayed dead. He's living with us in this moment reminding us that the rhythm of the death, burial, and resurrection is our rhythm today. We die. We lose things. And we lose them so that Jesus can live in us, so that we can live for Jesus. So in this moment, God, we give you thanks for everything you have accomplished for us in Jesus, that his loss is our gain, and that you will remind us with our hands and with our lips as we take this bread and we take this cup that we are committing to a life of following Jesus in everything we do, even when it's hard. In the name of Jesus, we pray.